This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Wasn't it interesting how the initial House bill to provide relief to Americans in the midst of a pandemic ended up looking an awful lot like a little Green New Deal? Among other things, as The Hill reported, that bill had a billion dollars for the Transportation Department to buy fuel inefficient planes from airlines that they would replace with new models with lower carbon emissions. And it also would have mandated a study of climate change mitigation efforts in the airline industry, because that's what's important during a pandemic, right? And Republicans were all onto it. Well, now that the Senate passed that $2.2 trillion relief bill. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, is already talking about passing more legislation. And Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, responded by saying that Pelosi only wants another bill because of her unfilled wish list that she's just put out to change election law to include the Green New Deal. But the reality is that the Green New Deal is already creeping across America, something that Tom DeWeese, the president of the American Policy Center, has pointed out in a very important article over at AmericanPolicy.org. Tom is also the author of Sustainable, the War on Free Enterprise, Private Property and Individuals. And he joins us now. Tom, great to have you with us again. Good to be with you, Janet. Thank you. Thank you. I guess you weren't the least bit surprised that Democrats would try to sneak Green New Deal provisions into a coronavirus relief package. What is going on, though? What's going on with these people? Well, they've they've been trying to stick it into everything. You know, just uh, a few weeks ago when uh, President Trump signed the USMCA uh, treaty or agreement, Nancy Pelosi managed to add 600 pages to that with all the same things in there. We tried to get a warning to the White House, but we're not able to get through with it. So, you know, it's just an ongoing thing. And I've just gotten in the last uh, couple of days uh, some reports from uh, radical environmentalists and uh, leftists, you know, pushing on this. One of them, this is a headline to this one report, Global Green New Deal supporters urge world leaders to learn from the coronavirus to tackle climate crisis. And uh, they, they said this, this makes it very clear that we need a Green New Deal. And uh, then there's a candidate who's running for the state legislature in Colorado, who's an environmental activist, and he said the coronavirus has proved we can afford the Green New Deal. Ugh. And uh, so, you know, just go on and on with this, that they're, they're moving on with it. And then, then there's an organization called the Security and Sustainability Forum, and they are, right now, as we speak, holding town halls across the country, uh, talking to elected leaders and so forth, that, uh, you know, how we have to impose the Green New Deal to make sure a pandemic like this doesn't happen again. Good grief. Well, you can't let a serious yeah. crisis go to waste. I mean, th- that's the whole thing. And, and these people would want it regardless. If the coronavirus was no threat at all, they'd say that just shows that it's time for the, the Green New Deal. They would say it either way. But what I mean, what possible connection can they make between the coronavirus and climate change legislation? What? How do they even get from A to B? They don't connect. 
I think it's the same connection as saying that the uh, the arts need to twenty five million dollars. There you go. <laughs> right, right, exactly. The Kennedy Center. There's your answer. Yeah. I yeah, know. It's crazy. Well, Joe Joe Biden, too, has tried to tout this Green New Deal. He's saying that this will help economic growth in the wake of the coronavirus. He's advocated for investment in infrastructure-related jobs to offset the economic impact of this pandemic. They're they're just reaching for anything they can reach for. Absolutely. I mean, what it's all about is restructuring the United States of America, getting rid of the Constitution, getting rid of security for, uh, you know, private enterprise, for individual liberty, anything like that. Uh, All of those things are under attack under the Green New Deal. And this is what people have to understand. This is not an environmental program to uh, just protect the environment because it, it encompasses every aspect of our lives and, and it is attacking the uh, economic system, the, uh, the social system, everything. Yeah, it is. Now, you have outlined that according to the Green Party, there are these four pillars of the Green New Deal, one of which is the Economic Bill of Rights. This consists of the right to full employment and ending unemployment by guaranteeing a job at a living wage in a safe workplace empowered by labor unions. I mean, this sounds ridiculous at the times in which we're living right now. I mean, that's fantastic. How do you implement that when a pandemic is keeping everybody home? It just looks foolish when you, it's foolish anyway, but it looks extremely foolish now in the midst of where we all are. Well, and and again, if you listen to the presidential candidates uh, and everything that they're saying, uh, it's all the pieces and parts of the Green New Deal. They've been calling for full employment and, uh, you know, the the living wage issue and so forth, all all, and Medicare for all. These uh, all these are all talking points of every presidential candidate. But here again, the Green Party, which is a major proponent of the Green New Deal, is saying, well, this is one of the major uh, pillars of the of the Green New Deal. So uh, this is what they're advocating as they're running to, uh, you know, get control of the country. And again, they're putting it into any opportunity they have to, uh, you know, force legislation through to make it happen. Totally right. Now, you have written about how the Green New Deal is already creeping across America. And I think listeners really need to understand that despite the fact that AOC was laughed at about her cows and all the rest of the silly stuff that was in the original Green New Deal, Things are moving forward. Can you tell people what has been going on to advance this Green New Deal kind of under the radar? Well, yes, we uh, are having, uh, I mean, first of all, every single agency of the federal government uh, is pushing various parts of this. It's, it's, it's just in their mandate to, uh, you know, you'll find a sustainability page on every website for all of them. The Interior Department uh, and its Bureau of Land Management, uh, you know, they, they've, uh, been working to control the agriculture industry, control the open space, and so forth. That's right out of the World Wildlife Fund. And uh, what what they uh, want to have us do is, is stop having uh, people live out in those areas, pushing people into the cities. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, the, the Department of Education is uh, a major proponent of all this. The, we have completely replaced the education system of academics. You know, reading, writing, and arithmetic is now behavior modification to make sure we have the perfect little global village idiots that uh, <laughs> can live under this stuff. Right. And, uh, you know, that is the, the education curriculum today. And, uh, you know, it's why we see so many uh, of the poor kids who don't understand what what this is all about. But in um, uh, a couple of, uh, of different places, uh, you know, of course, we're, we're being told the climate crisis is everywhere. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the last um, 
month or so, Virginia has been a real focus yes. on um, uh, what happened in our state legislature. The um, the Democrats took control of it for the first time in many years, and uh, with a Democrat governor, they were just on a tear to uh, completely impose all all these things. A lot of people heard a lot about the gun control issue. That was that's what really was was getting the focus. But underneath all that, there were all kinds of bills being put in place that were affecting private property, affecting energy. They passed the Virginia Clean en- e- uh, Economy Act. Get that, not Energy Act. The Virginia Clean Economy Act, hmm. and that was to end the use of fossil fuels in the state. And um, uh, you know, work, they were working to. You know, it, it calls for shutting down uh, some megawatts of uh, you know 6,200 megawatts of coal-based electricity, and instead they're going to put up uh, massive numbers of um, wind, uh, solar, uh, you know, wind uh, turbines. Yeah. Uh, right off the uh, the shore, Norfolk and uh, Virginia Beach. Are they actually talking about ending, completely ending the use of fossil fuels? How in the world can they do that? Well, California has called for the exact same thing. They said within 10 years the uh, that everyone needs to turn to either solar or wind power for everything. And, uh, I mean, it, it makes absolutely no sense to do that no. to, uh, uh, because they don't work. No. Wind and solar don't work. And, you know, the interesting thing about wind power is those big old windmills need oil to turn. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, none of this, there, there's no, when you try to put logic to it, then it falls apart. It right. doesn't work. Right. But one of the real things that I'm seeing happen, I mean, if you've had, uh, uh, de Blasio in uh, New York call for his own Green New Deal. He's got ten bills that uh, that they've rushed through to, you know, again energy and so forth. But the, the one of the big things you'll see in your communities, uh, in the local level, is they're calling that we have a housing crisis and something that is spreading across the country. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll pick this up on the other side of the break. we got to pause just for a couple of minutes. Come on back. Tom DeWeese with me from the American Policy Center. We'll return on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford. Did you know that persecuted believers are praying to receive their own Bible? Nepo is a pastor in Africa attacked while preaching by extremists, and he's praying for Bibles for former Muslims who are now following Christ. Ada was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Europe, but her godly witness led him to Jesus. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by witches in Latin America, and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with them. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's Word and see many others come to faith? $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven Bibles, and a limited time Bible for Bible match will help us reach our goal of sending God's Word to 1,200 persecuted Christians. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or by clicking the Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? 
Don't go a whole year without having a health care program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, the Republicans successfully fought off that first House bill that Nancy Pelosi loaded up with Green New Deal provisions. But the Green New Deal is hardly dead in the water. In fact, there is a lot of movement as the Green New Deal creeps across America. Tom DeWeese, the president of the American Policy Center, is joining me to tell us what's going on. You'd mentioned this idea. You know, obviously, we hear about climate change being a crisis all the time. But you also mentioned right before we went to the break that they're talking about a housing crisis. And we've seen that like in Oregon, where they They've banned, what is it, single-family home zoning in in Portland and that sort of stuff. But what is the latest on the housing crisis line that they're using? And what's going on? How is the left implementing, you know, legislation in line with that? Well, that is is really the the new uh, thing that they're doing. And Oregon was the first state to uh, stand up and ban single-family home zoning. Uh, but other communities are now following suit with that. This is one of the things that was on the uh, the list, and I was mentioning what's happening in Virginia, uh, popping up there. It's popping up everywhere. If you, if you listen to your city councils, your county commissions, you'll begin to hear them talk about this. And uh, one of the reasons for that is uh, this is implementation of the smart growth, sustainable policies of the stack and pack high rises in uh every city they uh they uh, they've actually the, the mayor of Minneapolis actually labeled single family zoning as racist that's right he said those people living in those neighborhoods people who have their own home are trying to self segregate themselves from people they don't want to live next to <laughs> so it's racist and the idea here is to begin to open up those single-family neighborhoods where they can begin to build the high-rises, public housing, the uh, uh, low-income housing, things like that. They keep telling us we have a shortage of. And uh, you mentioned Portland. The the example in Portland is, uh, you know, they were the poster child for this 20 years ago, putting all this together. And what they did in in, uh, around the cities in Oregon, Portland being one of them, they put these um, uh, lines around the city. Uh, no growth boundaries around the uh, the city it said no there'll be no growth outside of this line and so uh you know they, they call that urban sprawl we're not going to have that that's bad that gets people want to be in their cars that, you know so we're going to have everybody move into the central area of the city well what happened was in the last 20 years the population of portland has grown by 80 <laughs> percent now they suddenly have and, and, and the growth boundary has not been expanded so now they say we have a housing crisis we don't have room to have a single family home there because uh... we could put a hundred families in a space that takes up your backyard <laughs> So 
you know, this is this is the drive, and we're seeing this move clear across the country in uh, in various ways. This is very disturbing. It, it's not racist to want to have a backyard for your kids to play in, or is it these days? I guess it is. Yeah. Well, when you, the thing is that, as I've been advocating uh, or trying to spread the alarm for 27 years on Agenda 21, yeah. And uh, what they wanted to do there, I was I was laughed at, I was poo pooed, I was given tinfoil hats and conspiracy theorists and so forth. And uh, as, as I talked about this, and I go into city councils and try to talk to councilmen, and they roll their eyes, and we get the sigh, and we go, oh come on, that's been debunked, on and on and on. The the, the thing with the Green New Deal is they have taken all of the the smokescreen away. They've taken away the, the nicey language that this is just about protecting the environment, and they have made it very clear this is about a complete reorganization of our society and, and, and our laws and so forth. And uh, so, you know, this is, it, it's, it's, People aren't laughing as much anymore. No, no. you look you look brilliant now, even though you knew you were right the whole time. That's true. Yeah. Something else you've been working on, and I wanted to make sure to get to this before we run out of time, Tom, and that is this issue of the so-called agriculture crisis, the effect on farms, the effect on the beef industry. Can you tell people what's been going on there? Absolutely, and and this is something I just kind of learned about last year. The uh, the beef industry. Uh, has literally been taken over by the World Wildlife Fund, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I, I've said, uh, I, I've called them the Judas Goat that is that is leading them into slaughter. The World Wildlife Fund has, you know, one of the they're one of the top three most powerful environmental organizations in the world. And uh, they're behind all of these policies, and they have said that in order to save the planet, we've got to stop beef consumption. And yet, they have put together, uh, with the help of, of the cattle industry, uh, and uh, they have put together this uh, Global Sustainable Beef Roundtable. And uh, it, it's amazing, because I did some articles on this explaining what was happening, rules and regulations that are forcing American cattlemen to take part of their rangelands and and use that for uh, letting in um, uh, other species and so forth, and which cuts back on how lo- much land they have. There's all kind of regulations on how they grow the beef. On uh, uh, it, it even has to do with how much money they pay their workers. You know, all the, there's that again hmm. in there. All this kind of stuff is destroying the American uh, cattle industry, and. Uh, I did an article on this uh, explaining it all, and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association responded to me by saying, oh, why sustainable? Well, you know, the, the, um, these organizations like the World Wildlife Fund have a lot of influence, and, and consumers are starting to ask where their beef comes from. So we need a place at the table so we can talk about this. Being a place at the table means you're for dinner. Right. <laughs> Good. Well said. <laughs> and, uh, You're so for dinner and is, your beef is not. I guess that's what we would have to say. Yeah. And one of the things they did was they took off the um, uh, label of uh, country of label, uh, country of origin labeling. And uh, so we don't know where our beef is coming from. And here's the scam they're playing. They are bringing in beef from other countries. Uh, that are not grown under all these regulations, but they process it here, and then they say this is American beef. Oh. The real villains in all this are the packing companies. They have the market, and they are making the cattlemen, uh, 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 you know, work with these uh, regulations. They have lowered the price of cattle uh, of beef so much that they can't 
earn a, a living, and they're bringing in this cheap, lower-grade beef, and even maybe even dangerous beef from other countries. They're making money, but our American cattlemen are being destroyed. And, uh, this is, and that is exactly what the World Wildlife Fund wants. They want to take all of that grazing land all across the West and so forth and turn it into wilderness, the... the uh, uh, you know, this 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 has been part of their process for for about three decades now. Yeah, are they moving toward this goal of not allowing anybody to eat beef anymore? Do you think they could get there? Well, here's here's the thing: the uh, when they bring in low grade beef, and and you're hearing more uh, news articles, uh, both beef and chicken, where they'll find it tainted. It's not, uh, you know, people getting sick from it, mm. or it's or it's just low grade. Well, that gets people afraid to eat it. That works perfectly in their oh, hands. Wow! So that's what they're doing. That's yeah. terrible. But you know, you look at the fact that we have a Republican president who's very vehemently against the Green New Deal, and you hear all this stuff, and you think, why doesn't Trump? do something. I know he's one person. We have, you know, Republicans controlling the Senate, not the House. You have leftists in charge of the House. But what can be done to fight back against all of this? Because we don't want to go in this direction as a country. Yeah, one of the big problems is the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue. He is a huge promoter of uh, the sustainable uh, beef and, and sustainable agriculture. Mm. And uh, if I were Donald Trump, the first thing I'd do is send him home. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where it's coming from. I, I, I want to give him excuses. I want to, I wanna, you know, because uh, I think Donald Trump has done a wonderful job in what he can do, but he has been under siege from the minute he walked into that office. Yes. And uh, being able to see everything that's going on is difficult. And uh, so, you know, but Sonny Perdue is one of the people who are responsible for this and uh, he's played all kind of games with this country of origin labeling and uh, one of the weak excuses they come up with is well we could make it voluntary it's absolutely worthless to make it voluntary that uh, some people put the label on some people don't whatever mm-hmm. you need to have a law that says that uh, we need to know where American beef is coming from. And, uh, you know, they've they've removed that. For sure. Well, you say that, you know, right now we're in this pandemic, everybody is home, everything is kind of locked down. But once this threat passes, the sustainable forces, you've said, are going to rush into the void to drive, you know, keeping many of these emergency powers in place because that's just how they roll. How might they try to do that? How do you see the current landscape and how the left might exploit this for, you know, not letting a crisis go to waste? Well, as I was just saying there in the beginning with these reports I'm getting, that they're, they're saying this, this is showing people how much we need this, and it's showing people that all the scare tactics that it costs too much, well, that's just not true either. And so, uh, you know, we, we want to protect the environment, and, uh, and we can, I don't know how they make the, the uh, connection, uh, you know, that this somehow would prevent this, uh, you know, uh, outbreak, but... Um, you know, and, and here's the other thing: as they are building all the, you know, pushing people into the cities and into these high-rise stack and pack things, well, the the um, the diseases are, are much more prevalent there. If you yep. look at the map of yep. where we have the most cases now, it is in New York, Los Angeles, places where we've already got this stack and pack thing going, and people are all crowded together instead of living in their own homes. You're right. So. That's no. a good argument, as is no. the fact that when you see these empty shelves in grocery stores and Walmart, the wonderful American capitalistic supply chain keeps restocking. And everybody's been making this point. Hey, if you want communism, just go into your empty grocery store and live with it for the rest of your life, because
because that's what you would get. I wonder if this is going to turn against the communists in the end in a lot of people's minds that they'll see capitalism is a good idea. Well, I see that happening. I see a lot of people saying that and understanding, even people who have been lifelong Democrats, watching how they've operated with this and so forth. Uh, I'll be honest with you, my greatest fear uh, you know, I think the American people can will, can rise up. I think we could see the end of the uh, of the Democrat rule and so forth and all this. But uh, you know, as, as Nancy Pelosi attempted to do in in this uh, uh, bill that they uh, they watered down with all this stuff, it had to do with election laws and so forth oh, no. that would, would allow them to. Uh, really control what goes on there. And I'm most concerned about the security of the ballot box. I agree with you, Tom. Tom DeWeese, AmericanPolicy.org. Check it out. And thanks so much for being with us, Tom. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe, available now for home viewing on demand, starring K.J. Apa, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. The health of Americans is obviously on every front page right now and is probably more of a national concern than it's been in any of our lifetimes. How do Christians handle the challenge of the coronavirus pandemic? It's not just on our minds, but on the minds of those who have the responsibility of helping Christians handle their health care costs. So we're going to check in now with Matt Bellis, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit health care sharing ministry. Matt, always great to talk to you. How are you doing? Always great to be here, Janet. Doing well as uh, all of the uh, environmental concerns can be considered. Oh, my goodness. Well, I was thinking about you guys. What is your perspective right now on this whole coronavirus threat, given what you do and how you help people every day? You know, I actually look at this whole situation from a couple of different lenses. Uh, But whenever it comes to healthcare sharing, the whole aspect of this, whether it's the quarantine or the virus itself, getting testing or, or those kinds of, of those things, healthcare sharing really is in a unique position because we didn't have to get some uh, special call from Congress or the president to see whether or not we're going to be able to handle uh, this issue. Right. Because we don't go through actuarial tables, uh, we don't go through uh, different ways of, uh, of trying to predict costs. We don't have to deal with the, uh, the new. We don't have to try and figure out what this is actually going to cost. Uh, we deal with things that are post-bill, post-assessment. And so we actually have a system in place uh, with Liberty HealthShare that deals with the actual cost of health care rather than the predicted cost. So uh, the tests, the treatment, everything that would happen because of this novel COVID-19 virus uh, is completely uh, eligible for sharing within our community. So that's one thing. But the other thing when it comes to uh, Liberty Health Share in this whole, whole aspect is it's starting to expose uh, the, the fundamental bureaucracies and the problems that are current within the health care system, mm-hmm. uh, where we don't have to, we, we shouldn't have to, as individuals, be seeking special accommodations 
from bureaucrats 3,000 miles away to try and take care of the issues that we're currently dealing with. Right. We should be able to handle these things on our own. So it's a little bit of a, of a dark blessing uh, to, to actually see where healthcare can actually be improved by this type of virus. So yeah. that's in the way that we see it right now. Well, that's great. Now, you know, it's interesting for listeners who may not be very familiar with the healthcare sharing model. Why is it that this is kind of, as you say, a dark blessing, given the fact that the way Liberty HealthShare operates is that you do have members of a community who are working together to help pay each other's bills. Why is that a unique and important differentiation from the traditional insurance model? Well, because the traditional insurance model uh, really does gravitate towards this third-party pay system that tries to put all of the things in a pot. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I like to call it a bureaucratic black hole where they're trying to spread risk, mitigate it. Uh, They're trying to uh, use different uh, cost prediction measures, get into contracts with different hospitals. You know, that type of model really bureaucratizes the system and muddies the water of what really needs to happen in healthcare. Because in the end, people need to be able to receive the health care that they need. Uh, and the best way to do that is if you give power back to the individual and let them control the whole situation within their health care. So what we have done as a health care sharing ministry, we have rele- released the most powerful force in healthcare today, and that's the individual self-pay patient. When we have individual self-pay patients who are responsible for their own health care and their own health care costs that are voluntarily contributing to one another's uh, needs on a voluntary basis, we have a system of success. So now we are able to contain costs on the front end as well as on the back end when it comes to negotiation we're able to uh, make sure that individuals have the freedom to deal and uh, work with their doctors as they please. They don't have to go through gatekeepers uh, that uh, tell them where they can and cannot go. Yeah. Uh, we have a system now that is directed by a community of people rather than a small, faceless, nameless uh, oligarchy who is <laughs> calling the shots. We have a system that has put power back into control of the self-pay patient, helping them in times of need when things are unexpected and unaffordable. Yeah. So it completely changes the model, and frankly, it's a lot better uh, from my humble opinion. Yes, well, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that you mentioned before is about COVID-19 and the costs associated with it. People don't know exactly how that's all going to go down, but you guys have said that COVID-19 testing is eligible for sharing and uh, along with some other costs. Can you speak to that issue a bit? Sure, because it's a medically necessary procedure. Uh, if somebody is going to the doctor or hospital and the doctor rules out any other known forms of, uh, of sickness or illness and says, I believe this person might be suffering from COVID-19, uh, they administer the test. That is a medically necessary uh, issue that has arisen from that person's medical care. So it is absolutely eligible for medical sharing. Uh, I actually look at it in, in, in the way that uh, we deal with cosmetic surgeries. We don't, as a group of individuals, don't share in, in uh, cosmetic surgeries or elective surgeries. 
Right. But if you had a cosmetic surgery and it's medically necessary to help your uh, your health uh, for your per- for your uh, individual situation, that is an eligible medically necessary procedure. So those types of things, when it comes to COVID nineteen or anything that comes our way within the healthcare realm, as long as they are medically necessary items to either test or treat, those are eligible medical expenses. And if people want to learn more about that, they can read our sharing guidelines. I have to say, it's not the most riveting information in reading to uh, to go through. So if you're having trouble going to sleep at night, look at our sharing guidelines. But it's available for you. Uh, to, to look at if you need to. Very good, at org. You know, also on your website, Matt, you have asked this question, how do Christians handle this kind of a challenge and what makes us different from others? Which I think is a valid question right now because there are a lot of Christians who are nervous and they're rightly, you know, not sure what's going to happen in the future. But how do you calm people's fears right now and, and especially on the issue of healthcare costs? Well, really... Uh, on a couple of aspects, I would say the the social and uh, almost economic impact of this uh, whole situation. Uh, really, we don't know all that we would like to or need to know. And the best go-to uh, uh, default mode that any Christian can go to is dependence on God. Right. Uh, if we are truly dependent on Him for our for our life and our livelihoods then this is the perfect time to exercise that faith. Uh, And that's what we need to do as Christians, to know that God is in control. He is our sovereign king. We need to look to him for for our life and livelihood. And to do those things in which the Bible tells us to live out our lives, to live with compassion, to act sacrificially, to be a little bit kinder, be a little bit more gracious, especially in times like this, we need to exercise those attributes and uh, fruits of the Spirit, because now is the time where it really matters in our faith. Uh, Not when things are going well, when things are hard. This is the time that matters to really exercise those fruits of the Spirit. And if you do those things, those things that come up in your mind within fear or uh, a, a preoccupation with self, all of those things that happen to come up, God will take care of those issues as long as you focus on Him, His kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Yes. So, uh, that's, our, that's our message to our members and anybody else who is dealing with this type of situation. Yeah, you really can't top that, can you? And I think this pandemic will end up driving home the importance of something that you talk about all the time, Matt, and that is a community coming together to help each other in the time of need. Well, you can check out more at libertyhealthshare.org, Liberty Healthshare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. And Matt Bellis joining us. Thank you so much, Matt, and stay well. Thank you, Janet. You too. Okay. God bless you. And we'll be back right after this on Janet Mefford Today. From now through April, Janet Mefford Today is partnering with Bible League to send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. Can you help? Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 
800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Available now for home viewing on demand. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. You chose willingly to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. I Still Believe. Starring K.J. Apa, Rick Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The global COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact on the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. Sheltering in orders across the country are spiking the number of unplanned pregnancies, and the Preborn call center is inundated with girls calling us. Contrary to government mandates to stop elective surgeries, Planned Parenthood remains open, consuming scarce medical supplies, all the while aborting babies. Our clinics are offering free, Christ-centered alternatives to these women in this time of crisis. But our clinics need your help now more than ever. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and a direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in this time of need? Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound. $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's Janet. This hour of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe, available now for home viewing on demand, starring K.J. Apa, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com. President Trump has now extended social distancing guidelines to April 30th. I guess I'm not really surprised by this, and I actually think it probably is the wise and prudent thing to do. I guess they looked at 12 different models, 12 different models, with uh, Dr. Deborah Burks announcing this at this uh, gathering on Sunday. Uh, They went back to the drawing board, and so he's working with these health experts to try to come up with the very best plan for seeing those the curve flatten, I should say, and seeing the numbers of deaths and and new illnesses of coronavirus go down. And that's what we all want. That's what we're all praying for. But meanwhile, the left is doing everything it can to kick the president, because why wouldn't you kick the president? We have a presidential election coming up and boy, just mail your ballots to Nancy Pelosi's house and everything will be just fine. There's no chance of fraud. These people aren't doing everything possible to make sure that they can make you know, get Trump out of office because all of their other attempts haven't worked. So Nancy Pelosi, I got to get to Nancy Pelosi first. She is just a piece of work. I'm just going to put it that way. She's just a piece of work. She was on CNN yesterday, and I guess none of us should be surprised that she was blaming President Trump for the coronavirus deaths. Listen to this. Cut to. First of all, let me just say how sad it is that even since the president's signing of the bill, the number of deaths reported has doubled from 1,000 to 2,000 in our country. This is such a very, very sad time for us. So we should be taking every precaution. Uh, what the president, his uh, denial at the beginning uh, was deadly. His delaying of getting uh, is, Equipment to where it, is, it continues is delaying getting equipment to where it's needed is deadly. And now I think the best thing would be to do is to prevent 
uh, more loss of life rather than it open things up so that, because we just don't know. We have to have testing, testing, testing. That's what we said from the start before we can evaluate uh, what the, the, the uh, nature of it is in some of these other regions as well. I don't know what the purpose of that is. I don't know what the scientists are saying to him. I don't know what the scientists said to him. When did the president know about this? And what did he know? What did he know and when did he know it? That's for an after-action review. But as the president fiddles, people are dying. And we, have to, we just have to take every precaution. The president has not fiddled whatsoever. Let's recall something. Back in January, when the president had formed his coronavirus task force, and back in January, when he banned foreign nationals who had traveled to China within the previous 14 days from entering the United States, Nancy Pelosi was tweeting things like this. Oh, let's look at one of her tweets from January 31st. The Trump administration's expansion of its un-American travel ban is a threat to our security, our values, and the rule of law law. Yeah, she was really concerned about coronavirus back in January, so much so that she was criticizing the president for making a move that actually saved many, many lives. Can you imagine what it would be if he had not done that? And we continue to allow flights coming in from China or people who had been to China recently to come into our country and spread this very contagious disease even further than it's already spread. He made the right move. He had a task force going. What was Pelosi doing? What were her minions doing back in January? to get him removed from office. That's what she was spending her time on for something that was not, there were no high crimes or misdemeanors involved in that entire impeachment debacle. So, you know, we have longer memories, Speaker Pelosi, than perhaps you think. And by the way, this was out on Twitter as well. This is a report from KPIX TV in San Francisco. This was a report from February 24th before any of this coronavirus social distancing was put into place. She talked about Trump's denial being deadly. He was on it in January when she was trying to impeach and remove him. And on February 24th, she was touring San Francisco's Chinatown. Listen to this. This is cut three. And going around to show that it is perfectly safe to be here. Uh, she says that this is a very special place to her heart because she started a lot of her early campaigning when she started her political career, uh, some of it right here in Chinatown. And uh, we got some word from her earlier on sort of the message that she's trying to uh, purvey here. It's exciting to be here, especially at this time, uh, to be able to be unified with our community. Uh, we want to be vigilant about what it might be on uh, uh, what is out there in other places. We want to be careful about how we deal with it, but we do want to say to people, come to Chinatown. Here we are. We're, again, careful, safe, and come join us. Dan, I want to point out that no cases of the coronavirus have been found here in Chinatown or San Francisco at all. So she's really just trying to point that out because they have seen a drop in business here. Oh, well, that was late February. Come on down to Chinatown, everybody. No problems here, says House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who's now accusing the president of being in denial over coronavirus. What was she doing then in late February when you listen to that? Here's what's interesting as well. Sarah Carter pointed this out, that during that interview with Jake Tapper, uh, San Francisco was mentioned, but Nancy Pelosi never once discussed her district where cases of coronavirus have increased. 
On whom should we blame that, Speaker Pelosi? Oh, let's blame that on Trump, too. Let's blame that on Trump as well. Let's listen also to another outrageous clip. This is Chuck Todd over on NBC interviewing Joe Biden. Listen to cut one. You know, your campaign put out your in a critique of, of President Trump and says if he doesn't do these things, you know, he could he could cost lives. Do you think there's already do you think there is blood on the president's hands considering the slow response or is that too too harsh of a criticism? I think that's a little too harsh. I think what's happening is the failure to as I watched uh, a prelim to your show where someone said that uh, made made the phrase use the phrase that uh, the president just thinks out loud. He should stop thinking out loud and start thinking deeply. He should start listening to the scientists before he speaks. He should listen to the health experts. Okay. Joe Biden, maybe you should stop thinking out loud. We've seen a lot of your gaffes. You should stop thinking out loud. But at least he had the class to say that Chuck Todd was going too far by trying to say that President Trump has blood on his hands because of the coronavirus pandemic. How come they never go after China, by the way? They sure do a lot of scolding of President Trump for calling it the Chinese virus or anybody drawing attention to the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is responsible for the delay in announcing to the the world that there was a the beginnings of a pandemic in Wuhan. How come the Chinese Communist Party never draws any fire from any of these leftist media types? Because that's where the blame ought to be drawn is on China and on how everything was handled in Wuhan. And it's self-evident, but they'll never do it. And speaking of communists and or socialists and or progressives, you can take your pick on who's where. Mayor Bill de Blasio. This one really blew my mind. This blew my mind. I guess it didn't really surprise me, but this is from the Jerusalem Post. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio warned the Jewish community that synagogues that continue to defy coronavirus regulations and hold services will be permanently, get that, permanently shut down. This is Mayor de Blasio saying it. This is cut four. Everyone has been instructed that if they see Worship services going uh, services going on. Uh, they will go uh, to the officials of that congregation. They'll inform them they need to stop the services and disperse. If that does not happen, they will take additional action, up to the point of uh, fines and potentially uh, closing the building permanently. Okay, I guess most of the synagogues, most of the houses of worship in New York City are abiding by the common sense restrictions. You should not gather with more than 10 people. Apparently, there are some synagogues who are continuing to hold gatherings of more than 10 worshipers. And that's what led to this. But excuse me, how does the mayor of New York City have the right to permanently shut down a house of worship, permanently. You can never come back. Even if coronavirus goes away and everybody in New York City is healthy again, you can never exist, you synagogues, because you didn't go along with our guidelines. Look, I'm all for going along with these guidelines. I think it's common sense. I think it's smart. I think the churches are right for temporarily not holding services it's smart to do that during a pandemic. We'll get back together in our congregations soon enough. And it is difficult, but we can get around it for a limited period of time. But you don't have the right as a mayor under emergency powers to threaten to permanently close houses of worship. And I'll tell you something, who needs Xi Jinping when you have Bill de Blasio? Isn't that exactly what the communists do overseas? All the time in China, we're going to shut down your churches. Boy, the, we. you know what? 
These people need to be watched and these people need to be monitored for the insanity that is coming out of their mouths. And we ought to very much be concerned about the potential for totalitarian impulses taking over common sense. So pray for this country. Pray for our president. Thank you for being with us on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Meffer Today has been brought to you by Bible League. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's Word to 1,200 persecuted believers. $35 sends seven Bibles, and today your gift will be doubled with a limited time match. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD.